Welcome to the Rodcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rod. My guest today specializes in human performance and is a C-suite level coach that combines neuroscience-based coaching along with biofeedback. She's the director of Habitude. She's a member of the British Association of Nutrition and Applied Nutritional Therapy. You might recognize her voice from TV on Channel 5's Secrets of Your Supermarket. Haley Pedrick, welcome to the Rodcast. Thank you so much, Rod. Lovely to be here. So, Haley, there's a lot of stuff that I'm super excited to chat to you about. I know it's been a long time coming, but I think it combines two things that you know I'm really passionate about. Uh, so one is chronic disease or non-communicable diseases, which you know includes things like like mental health, and the other, of course, is food. So whether that's cooking it, eating it, looking at applied ways to improve health uh, through anything that has to do with healthy diet, you know, health policy. So I'm really excited to be chatting with you today as I know you work in all these areas. So let's get started and tell us a little bit about what you do and sort of what your day-to-day looks like and, and how you help patients. So I work as an executive coach and as a nutritional therapist, and I essentially specialize in combining nutrition and functional medicine to help people to build better physical and mental support structures and enable them to thrive. And the idea behind this is really getting the biology set up well so that there is this opportunity for them to be able to build a better brain and really do their best thinking particularly under pressure because i tend to work you know with people that are peak performers within their organization they are you know in quite stressful positions a lot of the time and so it's about helping them through both coaching and then these lifestyle medicine practices to elevate their performance and then sustain that over time So lately we've seen a growing interest in things like performance and mental health, but there seems to be a tendency to separate the mind from the body and not consider them as as one. When we talk about food and its impact on things like mental health and, and performance, there seems to be sort of even worse understanding so so how do you approach that yeah it's it's really reminding people you know that um that their bodies are not just a vehicle a little avatar to carry their heads around right <laughs> they have a profound effect on what goes on in terms of their thinking capabilities and so if they can treat the body like a chemistry set if they can get that biochemistry right, they create the conditions for a better neurochemistry and they allow their brain to operate at its maximum capacity. And so it's about helping to establish that reconnection. And, and I do that, you know, through 
getting them to observe what's going on, how they are feeling, you know, monitoring their performance, uh, monitoring their mood. But then we also do quite a lot of in-depth analysis on their labs. And so we'll run blood tests and a number of other different types of tests to have a better understanding of what their specific needs are and then how we can support that and then get them to do the exercise of, okay, so how's this shifted the dial for me? You know, and then that usually helps once they've had that felt experience, it usually helps them to really stick with better habits and be conscious and be aware of how they treat the body so that the mind performs better. So when you say blood test, you measure things like iron, I guess, and different macronutrients, or what is it that you're looking for? Yeah, so we look at, you know, a lot of people will have a medical that they get, you know, from from their works. So there we're looking at things like your iron, your cholesterol, your protein levels. Um, you know, sometimes if the tests are slightly advanced, they might have a bit of a readout on things like active B12. Um, but in a general, those are good baseline markers for us. And then we'll use functional tests to evaluate vitamin and mineral requirements and then essential fatty acid requirements. All of these aspects feed into brain function. And so having a look at the two types of tests um, helps us to get a very extensive understanding of, you know, where we can improve in order to help with mental health and well-being. And I find that fascinating because from a medical perspective, it's such a blind spot for us. I mean, we're taught in medical school, I'd say the very basics. So we're taught if you have B12 deficiency, this will affect the size of red blood cells uh, and things you know, like this, but never to a point where we really look in depth at the macronutrients and understand how it affects their cognitive function, for instance. Going back to B12, I know with a lot of the new diets or diets that come back into fashion, there's in many instances a real risk that you know patients will not fully understand um, the the dietary requirements associated with their you know day to day, and many of these diets will. Uh, result in things like iron deficiency and can really be dangerous uh, for people, especially with, you know, pre-existing medical conditions. Is this something that you have seen uh, recently within your patients? Yeah, it is something that I really think is important to raise awareness because I'm seeing a massive trend in my practice for people to want to orientate towards plant-based um, living uh, with veganism really driving that trend and I think uh, not necessarily in a healthy way you know there's a lot of shame and guilt that is motivating people to protect the planet and therefore adopt their diets you know in order to do that and then really not having an understanding of how to do that well in order to maintain health over time so you know it starts out with a really lovely ethic and something that is beautiful for people to want to do for the planet but it can be very damaging 
to the body, to your health, to your brain. And so there's a few things that I think are really important to highlight, you know, with regard to food trends. Um, On the B12 side of things, you know, a lot of vegans will end up being um, low in B12. And our body needs adequate levels of certain B vitamins, and that's B6, folic acid, which is B9, and B12, to create our red blood cells and to maintain healthy levels of hemoglobin that carries the oxygen through the body and the brain. And if we fail to meet these nutritional requirements to our cellular cells, we risk developing anemia, you know, so where that hemoglobin concentration falls um, below normal. And then symptoms of that would be things like, you know, fatigue, exhaustion, heart palpitations. And actually, uniquely, you can get this craving for ice. You know, so if anybody ever starts to feel like they suddenly need to chomp on ice cubes, it's a good sign that, you know, you might need to go and get your iron levels checked. And the moment that you get low iron, it's linked to the development of a number of mental health conditions, including addiction and depression as well. And part of the reason for this is because iron's needed in the creation of dopamine, which is one of our key neurotransmitters in the brain that influences reward circuits and how we experience pleasure. So that's just one of the ways, you know, that having these nutrient deficiencies can really start to shape, you know, our mental health and our habits um, and our risk, you know, of, of developing problems like addiction or depression. Um, But similarly, people that have got deficiencies in those specific B vitamins, they also might fail to convert an amino acid, which is called homocysteine, out to methionine. And methionine is then used to make other important proteins and compounds that support healthy neurotransmitter levels in the brain. So things like serotonin, dopamine that we've mentioned, um, and noradrenaline. And these all help us stay buoyant and stay motivated you know so there was a really interesting study that showed that patients over 50 years old uh, with high levels of homocysteine because of suboptimal levels of those b vitamins and magnesiums involved in it as well they had a 70 percent increased risk of depression which is i mean that's vast you know, and that's very likely because they're struggling to make this conversion and therefore the neurotransmitter levels in the brain are low and that has a profound impact on their mood. Wow, that's that's fascinating and, and something that we don't really hear that often uh, in terms of, of treatment for, you know, certain diseases. Um, I know from a, you know, cardiology perspective, the American Heart Association uh, has in, endorsed sort of the Mediterranean diet, and it's been a lot of research done in, in that area. You know, looking at sort of low carb diets, um, not necessarily for for treatment, but as a complementary uh, lifestyle type of advice for for high risk patients. Yeah, absolutely. And and Rod, actually, I'm I'm quite a fan of the low carbohydrate diet. You know, limiting carbohydrates has got a number of interesting effects. 
Um, you know, weight management, uh, it makes weight management quite easy, but also it can really reduce inflammation in the body because carbohydrates are very rapidly translated into sugars within the bloodstream. And then that can provoke insulin, which is the hormone that is needed to really remove the sugar from the blood. Um, and of course, when you get these spikes, um, you know, in insulin on a regular basis, it's a pro-inflammatory and pro-fat storage hormone. You know, so keeping your grain carbohydrates to around two portions a day um, is something that I will currently work with quite a lot in client and it's, sorry, quite a lot within in my clinic. And it's also something that I personally follow as a strategy and I've really noticed, you know, a reduction in joint pain and inflammation in my body when I keep to a low carbohydrate diet. However, um, when you do this, you do put yourself at risk of having low levels of selenium, which is, you know, a very important mineral, but it's also a very important antioxidant in the body. And then a number of people will have a, um, genetic SNP, so a single nucleotide polymorphism, that actually affects the way that their body utilizes selenium to make things like glutathione and selenoproteins. And I have that SNP. So I ran my own labs uh, at the front end of this year and was quite alarmed actually at how low my selenium levels had become. And that has major implications, um, you know, for your immune system, but also it can affect the brain. And just thinking back into my clinic, I had a very interesting case that I worked on a number of years ago where um, the patient came in because he had been to doctors and he had been to a neurologist because he felt that his brain was not working in the way that he was accustomed to. So he usually had exceptional memory recall, you know, even for very small details and nuances that most people would not remember. And he had been battling to access this inf information for quite a substantial amount of time. And he had convinced himself that he had developed some rare, you know, neurological condition. Um, but then having satisfied, you know, his need to understand whether or not that was a problem and, and being reassured that that wasn't what was going on, um, he finally ended up in, in my office and we ran some extensive testing on him and we discovered that he had a severe selenium deficiency. And he described starting to use selenium as like switching all the lights back on within just three days. Well, that is impressive. If I could only remember to get my selenium check now. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you can have a massive effect on our brain. It really can have a profound impact on our cognitive performance. And it's, again, something that people need to be aware of, you know, if they are like I do, you know, keeping that carbohydrate consumption low for other health reasons, um, you know, and particularly running their genetics. You know, I think one of the big things that I love people to do is know thyself. You know, that's my job is that I help people to really understand themselves deeply, understand what their specific Achilles heels might be, and then working with them in terms of diet, in terms of supplementation to really understand how to best support their body over time. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Uh, you know, recently they've said that we are in the midst of a, an explosion 
of innovation that we really haven't seen, you know, since the 1900s, where the telephone, electricity, uh, you know, and cars sort of converged. But today we we talk about you know five major innovation platforms all evolving at at the same time. So we have you know robotics, we have energy storage, you know things like lithium batteries. Um, and other, other types of energy storage. We have AI um, and blockchain technology. And then lastly, we have genomic sequencing. And so these, these five are going to converge quite rapidly. And, and we don't have you know, one technology doing an S-curve at a time. We have S-curves feeding into to S-curves. And you know all these platforms will, will converge, and, and they'll be all powered by AI, for for instance. And we've we've started seeing this in in medicine, where the the most you know reputable cardiologists uh, have said that the the two things that will change the the game in terms of medicine uh, are genomic sequencing and AI. And so having those two come together will, will really change how we practice uh, medicine. And, and of course, they're, they're tools, you know, they're not meant to replace um, the, the traditional, I'd say, types of diagnostic and treatment, but instead supplement them. But they will really make a, a wide and massive change at, at how we, we see the world. Yeah, and I and I really do find it very useful. Um, I love to combine genetic testing with deeper analysis on current nutritional needs, because what I find is that sometimes in the reports it'll come up with you know a particular SNP that's been highlighted, and it will suggest that you need a much higher level of supplementation or dietary attention to a particular nutrient. And then when I run the nutritional profiles, there is adequate nutrition that is meeting that requirement. And in actual fact, it's not something that is currently active or concerning, you know, in that person's body. And so using that information to get an understanding of what the issues might be and then checking to see whether that is something that is expressing in the body at this point in time um, or not, as the case may be, helps us to really better adapt the way that we do the diet and the supplementation um, prescriptions so that it's just intelligent and it's current and it's what your body needs right now, rather than having a very long list of things that you know you feel that you should be doing. Um, so that reminds me of a, a story I heard a while ago it was two cardiologists that wanted to look at the effects of a diet on things like cholesterol and you know BMI and and the rest. So they decided they would take uh, families in the, the the native country of one of the cardiologists, which was Finland, and families in Italy, and they would make them swap diets for an entire month, and then they would measure their results again in terms of blood work and, and the rest to see if there was any change. And so the natural process, you know, when you're going to do a piece of research is you submit it to the ethics board, 
before you launch it. And so it went to the, the ethics board in Finland. Um, they said, yeah, you know, that, that looks good. That's fine. Um, and then uh, it, when it went to Italy, it didn't get approved because they, they found it um, against, uh, they found it unethical that uh, an Italian family would have to be uh, submitted to uh, Finnish cuisine for, for a month. And, and that was a story that was told to me by a Finnish cardiologist. But going back to, to the testing, I mean, these, these tests sound like everybody should, should have them. I guess my, my question is, you know, would you be able to find these tests in, in different parts of, of the world? I think a lot more difficult if you're looking at places like Africa and, you know, South America, very much depends on the country. You know, somewhere like South Africa, this is absolutely readily available. Um, and Kenya, for example, would be another place. We can often get companies to send the tests, you know, so I, I have quite a few clients actually that I work with in Kenya. And I find very little issue with getting them testing kits and things like that that they need. But um, to the average person within those territories, unless you're working with somebody outside um, of that territory or somebody that has got international connections, often you're not aware of the fact that the information is available, you know, to you. So, so it's more about the knowledge um, of what is out there rather than necessarily the barrier of how do we get the test there? Because we can usually, we can usually get it out to them in one way or another. People struggle, you know, with getting enough water into them. I think coffee is uh, not something that's a struggle. In fact, that's something I'm usually trying to hold people back from drinking. Um, can be tricky. Um, Let me hide my coffee. <laughs> but we've known for a long time now that even just a 2%, you know, sort of dehydration within the body will impair performance in the brain. And I've even seen studies that have noted that just a 1% drop in hydration status will impact attention, your psychomotor skills, your memory skills as well as your ability to assess the subjective state, you know, so that's people's um, knowledge, their perceptions, their feelings, and their judgment. And so, you know, when it comes to your peak performers within the organizations, having a chronically dehydrated leader is not a very good idea, you know, because it does have information, um, implications for performance and for decision making. So it is something that we need to have a look at, but there's even more behind that. And, and so some of the studies that I've been looking at more recently have been around the effect of hydration and our, and our mood, you know. So there was a really interesting study that I read that took some volunteers that were typically high volume water drinkers, you know, so they drank between two and four liters a day, which is a significant amount of water. I'd say four liters is probably too much for many bodies. So and what's then, the right amount of, of water to be drinking? So I actually like to use a formula that is based on body weight to to help anybody personalize their water intake because there's lots of stuff out there around drink eight glasses you know drink two liters it's just I find it really frustrating so the formula that I use is your weight in kilograms 
and I'll give you the full formula and then I'll give you the hack on it. So it's your weight in kilograms and then it's divided by 15 and then times by 0.5. And that will give you the number of liters that you should be drinking in a day. And I was telling this formula to one of my um, guys that works in fund management and, you know, being a numbers person, he said to me, Haley, do you realize that that's just your weight in kilos divided by 30? <laughs> So that's a far simpler version of the formula. So your weight in kilograms divided by 30 will give you the number of liters um, that you should be drinking in a day. So that just helps somebody to orientate towards what is optimal um, for them. Um, but these high volume drinkers, so they had these high volume drinkers in the studies uh, um, and then they compared them to low volume drinkers and the low volume drinkers were drinking less than 1.2 liters a day. So you've got high guys that are two to four liters and then low people that are drinking less than two, 1.2 liters in a day. And they created a baseline where they restricted the high volume drinkers to just two and a half liters. They weren't allowed to go over that. And the low volume drinkers were restricted to one one liter at baseline. And then they did this three day controlled intervention where they flipped things around and they made the high volume drinkers drink only one liter. And the low volume drinkers were forced to drink two and a half liters a day for three days. And then they measured the impact on mood and they used several different mood scales. And I know you and I are big fans on measurement scales. So they looked at um, the bond and ladder visual analog scale. They looked at profiles of mood states. They looked at thirst and emotional scale. And basically what they found was that at baseline, both groups had a comparable mood state. And then when they did that flip, and they restricted the water consumption and the high drinkers, it resulted in these really significant increases in thirst, obviously, but then decrease in contentedness, calmness, and positive emotions, as well as the ability to engage in vigorous activity. So, you know, the energy basically that they bring into their days. And then of course, when they increased consumption in the low drinkers, that resulted in a significant decrease in fatigue and inertia. You know, there was no longer the sensation of confusion and bewilderment. And of course, they no longer felt thirsty either. And they also felt less sleepy. So it was absolutely fascinating. And I think, you know, so we, we think about it in terms of performance, but actually we've never really considered what it might do to our mood. And so that's something that if you are a chronically dehydrated person and you know that you don't get enough water in in a day and you're feeling maybe a little low that this one small thing actually could have profound positive benefits for you yeah i mean it's it's such a simple thing and and a lot of us are you know lucky enough to to have access to to clean water and we should really be taking advantage of that and drinking our our requirements for the day i'm interested to to hear more about the the study did they go into the the science of how this sort of worked at the at the brain level they didn't go into that in the study you know just logically thinking about it it's going to really just help with blood flow to the brain and that's going to facilitate improved measures from a number of you know different capacities um, I suspect as well that there will be an inflammation aspect to it as well. So, you know, the, the less dehydration, it would really help to reduce inflammation in the brain. And we know that that 
also creates, um, you know, sort of interruption with thought processes and is a significant driver um, for mood disorders as well. Um, so who knows? Hopefully they'll go into a little bit more detail uh, in future studies. So Haley, I've I've learned a lot today, and I think we've we've all gotten a lot of practical uh, advice. Um, but if there was one thing that you would recommend to our listeners that has made an impact on on your health, what would that be? Rod, for me, it has been picking up weights and adding that as part of my routine. Um, I began weightlifting just before the pandemic hit. And I was up until that point, a very strong yogi, and I still remain um, a yogi and I still practice yoga on a, on a regular basis. But what I found um, was that by adding heavy weights into my regime, um, is just a stabilization um, of mood, an incredible uh, improvement on my sleep. It has been a really remarkable force in, in helping me to have excellent sleep. <clears throat> and, I, and I'm using an aura ring um, at the moment and my sleep scores are always um, you know, sort of something I feel quite smug about. It's very, it's very rare for me to ever have a bad night's sleep. Um, and I really do feel that the exercise, you know, that I do is a very strong anchor. And, and we certainly know that, you know, from the research studies. But also the other thing that I found is the impact that it has had on hormonal balance and just this ability to have you know, sort of this strength. So we know that lifting heavy weights actually does support testosterone levels. And a lot of women think, oh, you know, that's not something that I need more of. But in actual fact, it is a um, wonderfully beneficial hormone in our bodies as well when it's in balance. And it helps to give you drive and motivation. And I have found that through lifting weights, it's had this incredibly um, improving impact on my hormone balance. And I'm quite uh, convinced that, you know, it's something that has kept me forward focused and motivated and energized. Uh, you know, throughout all the ups and downs and the challenges that we've experienced. And and I'm sure there are more to come. You know, there's a lot on the horizon uh, that, you know, people are concerned about uh, in the economy in particular at the moment. And I just find that that's been such an interesting experiment and something that I would love to encourage people to try for themselves because until I gave it a go, I was convinced that it would never be for me. And now I'm an absolute convert and I, and I don't go, I never go a week without lifting at some point. Um, you know, I'm super dedicated to it. So, Well, Haley, I just want to thank you for joining us. It's been a super interesting and super useful conversation and we just scratched the surface so i hope you'll join me again when we can talk about other interesting things like uh, you know sleep and and the brain and, and other things that you are an expert in oh i'd love to thanks rod thanks for having me hey thanks for listening folks if you enjoyed that please hit subscribe like and share see you next time